Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, everyone? In this episode, I speak with Nancy Fahey, the Wrightsville Beach Sea Turtle Project. So we talk about pretty much all things sea turtles, mainly loggerheads, um, like talk about their migratory patterns. They literally go all over the world. Um, talk about their lifespan, uh, kind of gestational periods, everything. Um, you know, we talk about why North Carolina and Virginia in particular are imperative for the preservation of sea turtles and pretty much why like baby sea turtles have a perpetual hangover. Um, so yeah, and one thing we mentioned, you know, we are local in the Wrightsville Beach area, but you know, there are sea turtles all over the place. So this is a pretty practical podcast for everywhere. But Nancy does mention a couple numbers, phone numbers to reach out if you find sea turtles within Wrightsville and then within North Carolina. The one within Wrightsville is one eight three three four turtle So if you find a sea turtle and you're in this area, Wrightsville Beach of North Carolina, give her a ring. She will help out, um, especially if it's a nest. She knows exactly what to do. And the one, if you're just in North Carolina in general, is 252-241-7367. So that's the hotline. But again, this podcast, like, loggerheads go around the world, all over the place. And sea turtles in general, um, you know, this is practical everywhere. So some things to mention. Uh, of course, there's some sound issues. Uh, not so much issues, but just me being the genius that I am. I brought bought the wrong mic. So... We are recording in a coffee shop, so it's literally getting a lot of different ambient sounds. I did my best to edit it out, but, you know, it, I, I'm not, you know, I didn't get everything. Um, and specifically at, like, minute 26, there's a blender going off, so there's an abrupt cut after that. And then one at, like, the 33-minute mark, there's another abrupt cut. So just signs that I'm a true professional at this. Um Cool. I mean, yeah, that's pretty much it. As always, if you have a minute and if you're a real saint, <laughs> give us a rating, a review, and a subscription on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this rascal. So far, I have eight ratings and two reviews, so I am well on my way. <laughs> Take that, Joe Rogan. Um, but yeah, I, I think you guys are all going to find this podcast really enlightening. I sure did. Um, and yeah, even though it's really... Um, you know, it's local to Wrightsville Beach. It's also got a lot of um, international um, applications. So enjoy. All right. So at any point between May and August, a beachgoer could walk in the East Coast, walk on the beach and see something in the sand that looks like ATV tire tracks. These tracks are in fact those of loggerhead sea turtles coming ashore to lay their nests overnight and returning to the sea before morning. So I'm here with Nancy Fahey of the Wrightsville Beach Sea Turtle Project, who helps protect these sea turtles to ensure that they get every opportunity to live a long, healthy life. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited for this. And I know um, a lot of people in the area are as well. So, um, so yeah, let's just talk a little bit about your involvement with the Wrightsville Beach Sea Turtle Project. How did you get started? Um, you know, how did this whole interest uh, and passion begin? Well, um, for starters, I was raised um, in a family. My father was a conservationist all of his life, so I was 
inherently interested basically in wildlife and the outdoors. Um, my brothers and sister and I were raised playing outside and yeah. enjoying the great outdoors. So we've always had an appreciation for nature. I think I probably maybe embrace that more than the others. But um, when I moved to North Carolina, I had no idea there were nesting turtles here. I, I came here to UNCW in the early 80s and had no idea and had been on that beach for many hours every wow. summer. Um, in 1995, it came to my attention that a program had gotten started to protect nesting sea turtles. The founding director at that time was Stephanie Carter. She was a resident of Wrightsville Beach. Um, she had, through a friend, discovered a sea turtle nest that had been laid on the beach right in front of the Hanover Seaside Club, which is oh, a very wow. populated area. Yeah. And it was unprotected. And her friend basically um, inspired her interest in learning more about it and what they might do to protect it and that kind of thing. So she got her program started then in 95, which was the, um, oh, I'm sorry, 94, which was the official beginning of the organized effort to protect the nest on Wrightsville Beach. Wow. So I heard about this in 95, and I was super excited even to know that we had nesting turtles, and I could not wait yeah. to get involved. So I um, signed up as a volunteer midsummer that year, actually. It was July. Um, and after I saw that first little hatchling, I was hooked. Yeah, that's true. I've seen a couple of, um, well, we'll talk about excavations in a second, but I've seen a couple of those, and it's pretty hard not to be hooked right away. Um, well, it's cool to know it just really happened from a couple of concerned citizens just grouping together and, and making an effort. It was, a, yeah, it was a very interesting. The gentleman's name was Jim Tyson. He was an older gentleman, member of the Seaside Club, and I think he under he knew Stephanie had a mutual interest in wildlife. So that was they made that connection, and she took the ball and really ran with it. So yeah, that was an awesome way for the whole program to get started. Yeah, absolutely. Well, nice. Yeah, that's really great to hear. Um, Twenty years strong. What kinds of turtles do you primarily see in this area? Okay, so in North Carolina in general, the primary nesting population is made up of loggerhead sea turtles. Um, we do also get the um, green sea turtles that nest on the North Carolina coast. They're probably the next most prevalent, but far less than loggerheads. Mm. We get the occasional but very rare Kemp's Ridley nest as well, and then leatherbacks also have right. been known to nest, but they're not many, very few. Right, leatherbacks are... The really big ones, right? They're the giant, yeah. giant. They can weigh well over a thousand pounds. Wow. Yes. So, how big do uh, loggerheads get? Um, average about three hundred to three hundred and fifty pounds, I mean, that's, which that's, is not small. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, okay, so great. So we get loggerheads. How far? Like, what's the latitudinal range of them? How far north? How far south? Do they normally swim? Do they, uh, you know, hatch? Well, they are the world's navigators in the ocean, as far as that goes. They they have the capability of swimming thousands of miles and that migrating throughout the ocean throughout their whole lives. Um, nesting range in the United. States in particular runs from about the Virginia North Carolina line south to, of course, Florida and the Keys, and and then far south. Like the loggerheads are probably the most common nesting turtle, meaning worldwide. But gotcha. they nest down in the Central America, South America. Um, but in in the United States, in particular, Virginia is and North Carolina, Virginia line is the northernmost part of their nesting range. Gotcha. Yeah. So we're almost at the edge, even though we're in the southern part of North Carolina. We are, and that that's an important. I 
I'll explain later, but that yeah. is, we have, play an important role in the population because wow, we are yeah. in the, what's considered the northern end of their nesting range. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, let's definitely chat about that because that's, you know, yeah, that's really cool to know. Um, so what is, so we talked a little bit about it, but what's the average life course like of a loggerhead from birth to, you know, you say they're traveling all over the place. Like what, how far do they go? How long do they live? Um, yeah, how far do they travel once they are hatched? Well, we know that the subpopulations of sea turtles um, inhabit different parts of the ocean, right? So I can probably talk most readily about our nesting population, which gotcha, is the yeah. mid-eastern, mid-Atlantic mid, um, population of the United States. So when, when you speak of the hatchlings, when they leave the beaches of North Carolina in particular, Mm-hmm. And, and the mid-Atlantic states, they literally go into what we call a swimming frenzy. So these tiny little hatchlings, they've absorbed this little yolk sac for energy, yeah. and they go into this swimming frenzy, and they will swim to up for up to three days. Wow. And their goal is to reach the Gulf Stream, which, as you know, is many miles off the coast in the summertime. Right. And they're looking for the safety of the um, seaweed, the mats of seaweed in the Gulf Stream, and the warm waters, which provides them with plentiful food supply. Yeah. So once the lucky ones that reach the Gulf Stream, and there aren't many because obviously there are many dangers along the way, and they're tiny, and they're by themselves, um, but they will literally stay out there for up to 10 years while they gain some size, and we call those the lost years. Because okay. we really don't see the loggerhead turtles rarely between the age of the hatchling to about 10 years of age. Huh. So they're obviously not coming back to, you know, forage? to lay eggs no. or forage? No. Wow. Okay, interesting. They don't reach maturity till age 30. Oh, wow. Okay. Approximately. <laughs> Not gonna make a joke about myself, but uh, <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> but yeah, but uh, yeah, it's interesting because one of the things you don't think about, you know, is that the Gulf Stream, or at least I didn't know, is the Gulf Stream is pretty regular in temperature year round. Yes. So you can you know chip ice off a boat on shore, but then you go out you know into the Gulf Stream and it's eighty degrees and you can go swimming. So yeah, they can probably just hang out there for you know forever and really not even. Have any temperature issues or, or you know, can eat as much as they need to. Correct. So they're ectothermic and they are dependent on the environment for their own body temperature to regulate their own body temperature. So they do migrate away from the coast in the winter months when it's too cold for them to inhabit the north, the near shore waters. Gotcha. Which is why they come back during summer to hatch right. time. So the juveniles, after the age of 10, do begin to migrate toward the East Coast in search of food supply in the summer months once they've reached some age. Gotcha. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they're still juveniles because they, remember, they don't reach maturity right, until right. the age of 30. And they're, you know, these juvenile turtles are, you know, around 100 pounds, somewhere in that range, 100 huh. to 200. Um, and we do begin to see them then in the summertime. Uh, in the near, near shore waters, unfortunately, a lot of times it's because they've interacted in a negative way yeah. with human activity out there. Gotcha. We've seen, since I've been here, I've seen a few of them, uh, you know, sea turtles being released back into the wild because of something called cold shock. Yes. Is that part of it as well, when they kind of slip out of the Gulf Stream? We do get, well, so what happens in North Carolina mostly is mm-hmm. that they don't migrate out of here in time, and the, the water temperatures drop too quickly 
Gotcha. And they be, they begin to react to that cold water before they have a chance to swim out of the near shore waters. And once they become too cold, they're no longer able to function normally, so they can't literally swim out of here. Wow, um, yeah, okay. Yeah, so, so in the Pamlico Sound of North Carolina, there are great numbers of them that uh, succumb to that. That's where it was. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we were in, uh, yeah, right off the coast of, you know, in the Outer Banks. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, okay, so they don't reach maturity until 30. Uh, what are the gestational periods of the season? Like, how often do they give birth? Um, how long do they have to, you know, hold the, hold the eggs? So, um, we are learning, a, you know, and sea turtle life history and biology is an evolving study, basically, scientific study, because they are marine animals primarily, so we... We, it's been a long time that we've been learning more and more about them, and um, we, you know, with technology, we have other methods now of learning more than what we would have, say, ten or twenty years ago. Yeah. Okay. So, um, in the spring, when we're talking about the adults, uh, the uh, male and female adult sea turtles, they have a meeting ground basically in the springtime where they meet to mate. And you never see the males because they never come ashore for any reason. Mm. And they only mate during that short period of time in the spring. And the females, amazingly, have this capability of, they have like a reservoir for the sperm. So once they have mated, they begin the process of um, basically preparing the clutches that they're going to lay throughout the summer. So they prepare one clutch at a time of an average of 120 eggs. Wow. Once that clutch is prepared and ready for the female to nest, um, beginning May 1st, officially in North Carolina, mm-hmm. running through August 31st is the nesting season, they will come ashore to lay that clutch of eggs. Once that process is complete, they will leave the coast and go offshore about approximately two miles, and they will hang out out there for about two weeks while they're preparing the next clutch of eggs. Wow. All from the same... Male, all from sometimes the more than one. Ah, so, the, okay. so the hatchlings can have more than one father. Gotcha, but all from like it's like they've they've saved the sperm essentially. Yes, so they wow. just they they are able to fertilize each clutch of eggs before they come back to shore. So that in that two week period, they're fertilizing the next clutch, preparing that clutch wow. of eggs, and then they will mass <laughs> they will go through that process one to six times in a summer. Okay, yeah. Interesting to do that summer after summer. No, so they only nest, and in, 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 like it, they don't nest annually. It's okay, every three to four years on average. Okay, but when they do, it's you know uh, up to six times a year. Yes, and it's wow. a very um, it's a very energy consuming process for them, and they go through that whole summer. They don't eat. Uh, they're not foraging. They're basically just concentrating all their energy on this effort to to nest. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's their one goal. It's amazing. Yeah. So what about, um, so, okay, of the 120, let's say of one nest, how many of those, that's probably tough to say, but roughly how many of those are making it out to the Gulf Stream? Let's well, just start with that. And it is a guess, but we often hear the scientists and the researchers say that they estimate one in a hundred possibly makes it to the Gulf Stream out of each wow, yeah, okay. clutch. So 1%. Yeah. Okay. Um, but interesting. And so let's say Wrightsville Beach itself. It's not a crazy big beach. I don't know exactly how you know long it is, but how many, maybe a couple miles 
I guess. It's about five, a little over five miles. Okay, I was yeah. way off. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so let's, so how many nests will be there in one summer or have been there this summer? And it does, you know, it varies from yeah. year to year. We see fluctuations. Um, this year we've had 11 that we have found on the beach. In 2016, we had 15 nests that we found on Whitesville Beach. But we've also had years that we have very few. And interestingly, those low years seem to come with, well, first of all, because this hurdle nesting um, behavior is cyclical, you're, we have down years statewide, right? But it seems like our statewide years of low numbers seems to coincide with the years that we get renourishment on our beach. Like okay. we have a renourishment project every four years. And that's when... And that's discouraging to the turtles as well. That makes sense. And just yeah. for anyone who's not from this area or been to this area, that's when they literally are taking sand from the, you know, from the ocean floor and bringing it to the uh, shores to try and literally renourish it to give it a little bit more right. sand back due to erosion. Right. So the, the turtles seem to be able to, um, they detect that it's not a natural beach and there are things about it that, is, that are a deterrent to them. So yeah, okay. they coincide. And so those years we know we can expect a low number of nests. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and yeah, I could imagine that. I mean, if you know, something smells off or, yeah, yes. a little, a, a slight change would probably, you know, they're not going to risk 120 eggs, let alone you know, multiple multiple, right. multiple nests like that. Right. Um, well, yeah, well, interesting. So, um, okay, so you deal with, you know, in addition to helping them, uh, you know, volunteering, making sure that the nests are protected, the nests are taken care of, what should someone, you know, you also help sick and injured sea turtles? We do. So what should someone do if they see a sick and injured sea turtle? Well, we, we definitely ask the public, and we depend largely on the public to let us know when they encounter these animals, but to please call, notify us, whether that be we have a state hotline number that they can call. What's I that? We have a local number. I'm sorry? What, what is that? Um, hold on, and I can give that to you. Is it 8334-TURTLE? That's the local. That's ah. the Rightful Beach. Okay. Emergency well, line. No worries. I can put it in, in the okay. beginning of the... Okay. So it's a 252 number, and it's a okay. state hotline, gotcha. and we ask folks to call because those, they are the biologists that oversee the program on the state level. They have access to every beach project on the coast. So if, say, for example, the turtles in Ocean Isle, they will have contacts down there that they can immediately get a hold of gotcha. and notify. Gotcha. So first and only step is, hey, contact someone who knows what they're doing. The first and only step is if you see an yeah. injured yes. turtle. Yes, yes, please notify Don't us right away. matters in your own hands. No, on. generally not. Now, yeah. you know, that's not to say we don't accept the help of the public. Let's say you're out boating and you find one that's stranded on a sandbar and you have the ability to help that animal, you know, get it into your boat and bring it to us. You know, if you make the phone call and we say that's the best course of action, then we sometimes do ask the public to help in that way as well. But it's always good to make the call first so that we, we have a handle on what's going on and the authorities have been notified of the situation. Yeah, and yeah. that makes sense. Yes. Um, so what should someone do if they find a sea turtle nest? A nest? Yeah. Okay, I always love for folks to call me. Uh, I do have volunteers on the beach, but it's always good to have extra eyes out there and more information than what, you know, I always love to get those extra calls because it helps me to know there are other people out there that are aware that are also looking yeah. for signs of the nesting turtles. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I think that public awareness is a, obviously a huge thing. It is. Um, and helpful. So yeah. I've had to actually, on occasion, miss, you know, and ask for some weird reason. Maybe there was a miscommunication between a volunteer and somebody who was supposed to set yeah. for them, and then a member of the public raised the alert and said, hey, there were tracks in this particular area, and, you know, then yeah. we know to go check it out. So it's always helpful to get those extra calls. Yeah, I bet. They're welcome. Yeah. yeah, especially having the whole public on your side. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, the, so once a, uh, you know, a nest is laid, what's the course of action from there? We've talked about once they've hatched, but like how long does it take for them to hatch, um, you know, once, once a nest is made? So part of what we do, we not only, like we protect the nest by marking it off and, you know, posting signs that let the folks know what it is and not disturb and what have you, but... Mm-hmm. We watch over the nest then for the period of incubation, which is anywhere from 50 to 60 days on average on the North Carolina beaches in particular. Again, when you, okay, so temperature is what determines the incubation rate. Okay. So the higher the temperature, the faster the incubation, the cooler the temperature, the more rain, then the slower the incubation. Does that also determine gender as well? That's why I mentioned okay. about the fact that North Carolina is an important, we contrib- we make an important contribution to the population in that, in theory, we are producing more males because we're on the northern end of the nesting range. Oh. Yes, even though it seems hot to us as compared to Florida. Of course. Where they produce more females, obviously. So warmer, in, in addition to being quicker, warmer yes. uh, temperatures produce more females. Correct. Interesting, yes. Um, well, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I had an idea that the gender was determined by temperature, but I had no idea that the, the incubation period itself was the time that It's also, the, right, correct. So we know, like, if the nests have been on the beach throughout the main part of the summer, say from June through August, to prepare for those hatchlings to emerge a little earlier than what a September nest might produce gotcha. hatchlings. So, gotcha. Yeah. That's a, that could, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a, a cue, but it's, yeah. you can't, yeah. you never can outguess them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Don't <laughs> so, okay, so we've got it from, you know, once the, the nest is, is laid, the incubation period, um, but, you know, we see, you know, the, the nest hatch, but what I've seen a couple of times is something called a nest excavation. Can you just chat about that a little bit? Sure. So, um, when we predict or try to um, hypothesize when a nest may emerge. We go out literally and sit with the nest on the beach. Our reason for doing that is to try to make sure the hatchlings get to the water safely. Right. Um, Without some oversight, we sometimes see disastrous results, unfortunately, because of the way we've altered the habitat. Yeah. So we, um, we sit there until we know the hatchlings have emerged, and then after that first initial emergence, when hopefully most of the hatchlings come out of the nest together, on the third night, so we sit with it two more nights to give it time for any hatchlings that may be left in there to come out on their own. Then on the third night, we um, conduct what we call an excavation. And the reason for the purpose for, of doing that particular process is to collect all the data that's available from that nest. So what we want to know is how many eggs did the female lay and what was the hatching success rate and were there any complications that we may want to make note of. 
we also release any little hatchlings that may still be trapped in the bottom of the nest at yeah. that time because a lot of times it's very difficult for them to get out of there on their own because they've been pushed to the bottom. They're all the way at the bottom. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. So for all those reasons, we do this um, with every nest, and all of that data and information is reported to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission, which, by the way, okay. we're permitted by them to even, you know, conduct this work on the beaches. Yeah, again, not anyone can just go in and poke around in the nest Correct. even after it's hatched. Correct. Um, okay. And so, I mean, that's something that would not have happened had you guys not have been there. Like, there's, you know, there's obviously no natural version of an excavation. Exactly. But on the flip side of it, you did mention that, you know, there is some human intervention. What kind of things are humans, or, you know, What's the issue that humans are creating, whether they know it or not? And what can people do if they, you know, live near a nest or, you know, happen to be vacationing near one? What can they do to help the success rate? Well, our primary challenge, at, as I might put it, at Wrightsville Beach is the artificial lighting, right? Yeah. And they have a lot of predators. I mean, raccoons, um, fox predation, coyote predation, mm. uh, inundation, excessive inundation from tidal overwash. There are a lot of different challenges that the, the nests have to overcome in order to produce healthy hatchlings. But our Wrightsville Beach in particular, because it is heavily developed and populated beach, first of all, if we didn't protect them, the survivor rate would be very low because they would be obviously walked upon, yeah. driven, driven over, any number of things. Uh, and the eggs are soft, so you know they would be yeah, like leathery, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. They would be prone to um, damage from that kind of excessive pressure. Mm-hmm. But um, lighting is the major issue that we deal with at the time of hatching or emergence, and the reason for that is in nature, or or uh, their instinct when they emerge from that nest from the cavity is to go toward light. That's the way they find their way to the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might wonder what kind of light there could be on a natural, undeveloped beach. But if you look out at the ocean at night, the white caps appear to be a source of light. Mm-hmm. There's also light at the horizon. And sometimes when yeah. we get really lucky, we get a nice bright moon out over the ocean, which is that's the ultimate experience because you really get to see yeah. them do what nature program them to do. It's awesome. Yeah. But the artificial lining becomes, um, it, it, it's attractive to them because a lot of times it, it, it basically overcomes any natural light that you yeah. might find out there in nature. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a bit of a bummer to any stargazer ever. Yeah. But then you had this just, you know, without even knowing it, you could be killing sea turtles. And birds, you know, it, it impacts bird migration. Oh, well. yeah, We know sure. that um, light pollution has an effect on many different species of wildlife. So let's say even if the moon is on the shore side, even if it's not on the ocean side, are they attracted to the reflection of the moon in the ocean? Is that what it is? They are, and we the moonlight really works its magic. Like we love it when we're out there in the moon. Yeah, because it helps. So it helps get the yeah. water without any kind of really any interference for the most part because it does overpower the artificial light. When when we have the worst problem is like when it's a new moon. New moon, sure, yeah, yeah absolutely. New moon and it's a dark night and the lights just overpower anything that they see. Um, yeah. on the horizon or even the white caps. And even though there are people, you know, with a constant, you know, you've predicted when they're going to hatch, and even though there are people hanging out there for a good portion of the night, there is a chance that these could hatch 
after the volunteers leave. Absolutely. And, and there's nothing that anyone could do. Right. You know, um, and if they do see some light that distracts them, then you could lose a large portion of, you know, an already, you know, a species that already really has a tough time making it to begin with. That's right. And one whole nest of hatchlings, the loss of that whole nest is it's really disheartening and disturbing. Yeah. They are desperate. I've seen it happen. They are desperately trying to find their way to the ocean. Oh, God, and yeah. Become that disoriented or misoriented. Yeah. Um, it's, it's painful to see what they go through to try. And, you know, they, they even end up in the roadway sometimes, oh. sadly. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, I got to imagine. And then, or even the next day, seeing the tracks going in all sorts of different directions. Yes. I, that's got to be a terrible. It's right? heartbreaking. It yeah. yeah. There you go. I mean, everyone, cut your lights. You don't yeah. need them anyways at two in the morning. Yeah. Know? And the thing is, they don't ask for much. You no, know? they don't. They really don't ask yeah. for much. They need a little section of the beach yeah, and they hang it. out on for a couple months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then just a little bit of peace and darkness. That's yeah. it. For that one hour span of time, it's going to take them to get to the water. Yeah. I don't think that's asking for a lot. Just think about you when you're hungover, right? What do you, <laughs> what do you want? A little bit of darkness, a little bit of quiet. Leave us alone. That's right. <laughs> um, well, cool. Uh, so yeah, one thing that uh, seems to be a new trend, and I hope it remains, is like plastic straw bands. I mean, we're right here by the beach right now. We're in a coffee shop that I haven't seen a plastic straw in for months. Right. Um, so you know, people are using glass and plastic, or <laughs> glass and metal. Um, a is that helping? Uh, you know, I'm sure it's probably pretty tough to say. But B, what are other initiatives that you think would help as much, if not more, than a plastic straw band? Well, I think the plastic straw band band helps to plant a seed, right? It's right. Not exactly. Solve the problem, exactly. But it plants a seed. Hey, this isn't that hard to do. I can easily refuse the straw. Yeah. So that's one less piece of plastic mm-hmm. in the environment that goes in the landfill or or ends up in a parking lot, right, or in the ocean. Yeah. Um, but I think. We need to move in, in a bigger way toward reducing overall our consumption and production of plastic and the disposal of such a huge amount of this material that basically never degrades, never biodegrades, and it's very hard to recycle. We're, we're inundated with it. We have got to move away from such a wasteful mindset about our use of plastic. Yeah. It is just... Single-use plastics are... I mean, they, they should be on my way out. Oh, yeah. long ago. You know, we've had ample time to work on this, and I yeah. think it's just a reluctance to change or a reluctance to embrace a more conservative approach, you know, to our... our the, the accessibility of it. You know, yeah. Having a plastic bag or 10 or 12 at the grocery store, yep. they're just going to end up... Either in the trash or yeah, they're not going to be recycled. No, I can tell you that much. And recycling it's is really just, difficult. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's the one thing about the plastic straw bands is both sides kind of frustrate me. One is ah, this is the solution. This is it. We're done. And the other side is like, oh, this is not going to do anything. You're exactly right. What you said. It's the you know, it's the first step. It's a toehold in us kind of understanding and wrapping our heads around something we probably should have 25, 30 years ago. Like. Hey, let's kind of go easy on single-use plastics. Let's use some, uh, you know, some more reusable items instead. Right, and ju- or just refuse it. You know, yeah, it's exactly. So easy to bring your own bags to the grocery store. Yeah, that eliminates a huge amount of waste. Everything's, 
grab a paper one if you forgot your own bag. Yeah, grab a paper one, right? I sometimes I'll just say, just don't have you know, an item or two. I'll say, yeah. give me a bag. I don't Same. need a bag. I can carry out. <laughs> I practice my juggling in the parking lot. That's what <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I just think we all, and, and just littering in general. I yeah. don't know where, how we've come to this place that we now are where it seems to be acceptable or commonplace to throw trash out in the street or on the parking lot or out your car window. You know, when I was growing up, you didn't do that. Like, my parents would have, we would have really gotten in big trouble. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah we were taught from the age, you don't litter. Yeah, yeah, from the way you described your dad in the beginning, that's kind of how my parents are. And yeah, it would have been a big deal had we done that. And I've kept that with me today. I mean, yeah, you know, absolutely. I've never thought it was acceptable litter even before I became so involved with sea turtle yeah. conservation and you know that kind of thing never in my lifetime would I have thought that was acceptable yeah yeah it's totally well, I'm hoping that, um, you know, I'm hoping that like what we're mentioning is like this is a toehold this is yeah. us to um, you know people understanding that it goes, everything goes somewhere. Everything goes yeah. somewhere. It doesn't just evaporate. Yeah. Um, and especially plastics could take a very long time. Absolutely. Or never. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. They just don't go away. So, well, one, on a positive note, like I've read that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that sea turtles are the one of the few success stories in populations. Like you've got turtle exclusion devices on, uh, you know, fishermen boats. You've got a lot of people invested in the well-being of sea turtles. Um, it might be tough to say from just Wrightsville Beach alone, because like we're saying, it's so dependent upon you know the renourishment project and the weather, but do you see or have you experienced that same population increase, trends kind of increasing? Well, I, I feel that we in North Carolina in general and on the East Coast, it, it seems as though we are seeing an increase in the nesting population overall. However, mm -hmm. you know, scientific data won't support that kind of an assertion or assumption for many years. Like they, it takes many years of collection of data. Right. They're, they're going to stick their neck out and say, Yes, we think this is definitely a trend, an increasing trend. We do hope, yeah. though, that that is the case. It does seem like, to me, we are seeing more, certainly on our beach. North Carolina this year, in particular, had a banner year. This was the, um, this was a record year for turtle nests in North nice. Carolina since we've been monitoring, which monitoring programs basically started in the 80s, um, really got underway in a big way in the 90s. Um, and... I would like to think it's because those of us who were doing this in the 80s or early 90s, yep. we're starting to see those yeah. adults come yeah. back to the beaches to nest, hopefully so. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that I mean that would make sense. That would stand a reason. Yes. What is the, do you have an idea of how many were in North Carolina in total this year? Uh, it's over 2,000. It's a record number. Wow. You know, actually provide you with that. I would need to go back and look at it, but it's, that's fun, yeah. it's well over. It's over two thousand, the most we've ever had. Wow, that's great because I'm looking at the numbers for Wrightsville Beach, and it also seems to be Wrightsville Beach itself seems to be pretty high. We're talking that there were eleven this year, and it sounds like since 2016 the high was was fifteen. Yes, but other correct. than that, like we're doing really great on the on this beach yes. itself. We are seeing definitely an increase, I think, in what we from what we saw in the, in the you know from 2000 to 2010 for sure, because we really saw a dramatic de decrease in the number of nests during those years. Yeah. So 
we've talked a lot about you know how people can you know, make sure the sea turtles have the best chance of survival, but how do people help if they do see a nest, both in Wrightsville, in and around Wrightsville Beach area, and also throughout you know North Carolina? So at Wrightsville Beach, we have a designated number um, through which I can be reached if they have something important to report, and that's one eight three three, the number four, and then turtle. And then on the state um, level, there's a hotline to report sea turtle activity of any kind. It's 252-241-7367. Perfect. Okay. So if anyone sees anything at all, just give it a shout. Um, and don't you know, don't try and do anything yourself. Exactly. Yes, it's always best to check in with the authorities first and get, at least get some guidance. Yeah, yeah, and get the whole, you know, get everyone aware that there's a nest here or there's something going on here so people aren't trying to find it. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, You know, we're all behind you in the efforts uh, that, you know, you and the Wrightsville Beach Sea Turtle Project have. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see if there's any more excavations this year, and I'm really happy to hear about the success story you guys have. Well, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely, yeah. Well, you take care. Thanks for joining If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog, don'tforgetyourboots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time, take care.